This week, the Pacific Drilling Debtors and Quantum Pacific file competing Chapter 11 plans. Intelsat announces an upsized note offering and anticipated exchange. Oaktree continues diligence on David's bridal. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung. And I'm Stephen Auber, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, distressed debt legal analyst Teresa Lee, director of Reorg Covenant's Saish Seti, and reporter Chase Collum sat down to review the Windstream trial, which concluded this past week with legal arguments after three full days of witness testimony. So stay tuned. It's Sunday, August 5th. On Tuesday evening, the Pacific Drilling Debtors filed their plan of reorganization and accompanying disclosure statement based on the ad hoc group of debt holders' proposal. An analysis from Evercore estimated the total enterprise value of the reorganized debtors, exclusive of any balance sheet cash or cash equivalents, to be approximately $2.05 billion as of an assumed effective date of September 30th, 2018. Features of the debtor's plan include $700 million of new five-year first lien notes, $300 million of seven-year second lien pick toggle notes, and a $400 million equity rights offering. The plan also provides for payment in full in cash to holders of SSCF claims, RCF claims, and general unsecured claims. According to the disclosure statement, the plan support parties hold at least 73% of each of the 2017 and 2020 notes and term loan claims. Pacific Drilling estimates recoveries of 39% for 2020 notes and term lenders and 49% for 2017 notes. After filing a motion seeking to prosecute its own plan, Quantum Pacific on Wednesday filed a draft version of a competing Chapter 11 plan, including a $500 million new equity commitment if consensual and a toggle to a $1 billion new equity commitment if non-consensual, a $700 million new first lien facility, and $300 million of new second lien pick toggle notes. Intelsat posted second quarter results on Tuesday, reporting adjusted EBITDA of $416 million, down a half percent from last year, and revenue of $538 million, a less than 1% increase. Later in the week, Intelsat announced that subsidiary Intelsat Connect Finance would offer $1 billion of new senior notes to 2023. The issue was upsized to $1.25 billion and priced at 9.5%. Proceeds would be used to redeem the company's 2022 notes. Intelsat further anticipates that all $1.58 billion of its seven three-quarters senior notes due 2021 issued out of Intelsat Luxembourg SA and held by ICF and Intelsat Envision Holdings will be exchanged for new 13.5% senior notes issued by Lux that mature in 2026. Intelsat's CFO said that the company intends to use the same structure that it used for the prior ICF transactions. Namely, the 2021 Lux notes purchased will remain outstanding and be held by Intelsat Envision, accumulating cash at ICF and Envision from future coupons sufficient to repay the 2021 Lux notes at maturity. Rio reported on Monday that Oaktree, a majority holder of David's Bridal's seven and three-quarter, $270 million unsecured notes due October 2020, and more than approximately $100 million in term loan debt is currently completing due diligence under a non-disclosure agreement with the company. 
Sources also told Reorg this week that the company is seeking to negotiate a deal that would include an equitization of the company's outstanding notes and a refinancing of existing bank debt. This includes a potential deal in which Oak Tree, advised by Paul Weiss and Mollis, would provide a new money loan with proceeds to be used to pay down term debt not owned by Oak Tree. Oak Tree would continue as a lender to the company under the new secured term loan, which would be subordinated to a refinanced ABL revolver. A group of majority term lenders represented by Jones Day and Greenhill has informed the company, advised by Debevoise and Plimpton and Evercore, that the group members are unwilling to refinance its term loan holdings and will only consent to a pre-petition deal that includes a full paydown of its loan holdings at par. The lenders will otherwise seek to initiate restructuring support agreement discussions for an RSA that would hand the lenders the company through a Chapter 11 process. Lender advisors are also completing due diligence under NDAs. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Permisa Oversight Board on Monday announced a preliminary RSA between it, the ADOC group of PREPA bondholders, and the Commonwealth government, under which PREPA bondholders would exchange all of their uninsured bonds for classes of new securitized bonds. The tranche bonds would be exchanged at 67.5 cents on the dollar and would be expected to mature in 40 years, while the tranche B growth bonds would be tied to the economic recovery of Puerto Rico and would mature in 45 years. The tranche B bonds would be exchanged at 10 cents on the dollar. Promesa said that unlike previous proposed resolutions with PREPA creditors, this preliminary RSA would align the future debt payments with the reality of the economic recovery of Puerto Rico, while also minimizing the long-term financial risk to PREPA ratepayers. The Oversight Board told Reorg Research on Tuesday that the preliminary RSA is not contingent on reaching agreements with other PREPA creditors. During a second-quarter earnings call on Thursday, Assured Guarantee President and CEO Dominic Federico said his position on the debt restructuring deal taking shape around the uninsured PREPA bonds is not, quote, negative, but also signaled that model lines carry, quote, significant weight when it comes to voting. Additionally, Governor Ricardo Rosselló announced on Tuesday a series of changes in his administration, including leadership changes at the Puerto Rico Treasury Department and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority. The governor said the changes are aimed at ensuring the execution of a number of important initiatives. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, PREPA preliminary RSA entails two tranches of securitized bonds. Number two, Reorg Covenants Prime. Amid declining liquidity and increasing leverage, Blackboard's ability to conduct distressed exchanges for second lien notes is significantly limited. Credit agreement amendments arguably required term loan lender consent. And number three, Heritage Home files for Chapter 11 amid declining sales after furniture brand's bankruptcy. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Stephen, and greetings from Houston, Texas, to one and all. And if last week's earnings weren't enough for you, well, I have some wonderful news. There's plenty more of that in store for this week. Beginning on Monday, August 6th, with Hertz, Weight Watchers, and Vistra Energy. In court action, we have objections to Quantum Pacific's statement in the Pacific drilling cases due at 5 p.m. On Tuesday, August 7th, we have Avis, Malincroat, and on the energy side, two Eagleford names, Penn, Virginia, which is currently in the process of reviewing strategic alternatives, and Sanchez Energy, which remains in the process of digesting a number of acquisitions undertaken over the past few years. Wednesday, August 8th, we have Comstock, Concordia, Indopharmaceutical, Iconics, Urban One, and Verso in the morning with Ambac and Quorum Health after the close. Thursday, August 9th, we have Windstream, Northern Oil and Gas, and EP Energy Report. 
There's also the shareholder vote related to the Albertsons Rite Aid merger. And on Friday, August 10th, well, we made it through another week of earnings. There's disclosure statement objections to you and I, Hart, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Make sure you check out our weekly calendar, which is published every Monday at 6.30 a.m., and that's all from me. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, distressed debt legal analyst Teresa Lee, director of Reorg Covenant's Saish Seti, and reporter Chase Collum sat down to discuss the state of play and litigation between Windstream, U.S. Bank, and 6 and 3 8 note holder Aurelius regarding Windstream's 2015 Unity spinoff and November 2017 exchange offer and consent solicitation. Handing it to you, Teresa. I'm Teresa Lee, and I'm here with the team covering Windstream, including Saish Seti and Chase Collum. Saish is the director of Rear Covenants, which focuses on the analysis of credit agreements and indentures, and previously was an associate at Wachtell Lipton. And Chase is a reporter at Reorg and was previously a senior reporter at IJ Global. Today, we're going to discuss a trial which seems to be on the forefront of many minds in the distressed and special situations universe, and that is the dispute between Windstream, Aurelius, and U.S. Bank. Reorg has attended and provided live updates from the week-long trial, and we are now waiting for a ruling from Judge Jesse Furman. There has been an ongoing litigation between the parties about whether Windstream's 2015 spinoff of CSNL which later became Unity, was a sale leaseback transaction in violation of the company's debt covenants. Aurelius, who is a majority holder of Windstream's 6 and 3 eighths notes, issued a notice of default last September, arguing that there is an implied sale leaseback between certain Windstream-restricted subsidiaries and Unity in violation of the debt covenants. In November, Windstream then announced an exchange offer and consent solicitation in which other note holders could exchange into the 6 and 3 eighths notes, and then waive any alleged event of default relating to the asserted sale leaseback. Over 61% of all holders of the 6 and 3 eighths notes consented to waivers of the alleged defaults relating to the 2015 spinoff transaction. However, also part of the current trial, Aurelius argues that that exchange offer was not valid because the additional debt incurred by the company in the exchange offer does not constitute permitted refinancing indebtedness under the notes indenture. Prior to the trial start, Judge Furman said that he did not yet have any tentative views or rulings. Further, he commented that considering the market implications for any ruling in this action, he likely will not give the parties advance notice of any ruling. Rather, Judge Furman said that he would likely docket a ruling for the parties for the rest of the world to see when he finishes the opinion. So first, before we get into the trial details, let's take a quick look at the current capital structure. The company continues to attempt to push out maturities, and earlier this past week, announced results of their latest exchange. Saish, can you give us an update? So on June 16th, the company launched a multiple-part exchange offer attempting to exchange unsecured notes maturing between 2020 and 2024 into new secured notes maturing in 2024 and 2025. The deadline was extended a number of times, and then last month, the company increased the coupon on one of the new secured notes to 10.5%. That must have been enough to entice holders because over 80% of the 2020 note holders agreed to tender. Following the exchange, Windstream will have approximately $4.7 billion of secured debt and $1.2 billion of unsecured debt. Its next major maturities include $2.4 billion maturing in 2020 and 2021. However, just 150 million of those combined maturities are unsecured. Thanks, Saish. So let's go back to the current status of the trial. This past Tuesday, Judge Furman heard legal argument from the parties and asked them about a number of issues. 
Interestingly, Judge Furman asked each party if he should issue a ruling on the merits if he determines that Aurelius is barred from pursuing its case on the 2017 exchanges by the no action clause. Counsel for U.S. Bank said that they would have to think about it, but Counsel for Aurelius pushed the judge to issue a ruling on the merits in the alternative. And Counsel for Windstream, for his part, said that he couldn't agree with the premise of the judge's question because the judge can't decide the sale leaseback issue until the standing question is decided. And according to Windstream, the standing question can't be decided in favor of Aurelius. Now, moving to the sale leaseback issue, the judge had specifically asked the parties to answer the question of, quote, whether the 2015 transaction constitutes a sale and leaseback transaction turns on anything other than when the than whether the transfer subsidiaries lease the transferred assets after they were transferred to CSNL, whether pursuant to the master lease or pursuant to an implied lease, end quote. Windstream's lawyer argued that whether the transfer subsidiaries lease the assets post spinoff is, quote, not the right question, because it is too narrowly stated. But Judge Furman asked why it would not fall within the meaning of a sale leaseback transaction under the indenture if the court were to conclude that the transfer subs leased those assets back. Notably, Windstream's lawyer then conceded that if the court were to find that there was an actual lease with the transfer subsidiaries as lessees, then he would likely not be able to convince the court that there is not a sale leaseback within the meaning of the indenture. Judge Furman said there is no dispute that the, trans- that the Windstream subsidiaries did in fact transfer the assets to CSNL. Specifically citing to the sale leaseback language in the indenture, Judge Furman asked Windstream, quote, can't I just find that the transfer subsidiaries lease the assets back full stop? And, quote, why does that not make the trustee's point correct that the 4.19 issue rises and falls on whether the subsidiaries were parties to a lease, end quote. And for our listeners, a reminder that the 4.19 issue is the sale leaseback issue, which is whether the Unity spinoff transaction constituted a sale leaseback transaction in violation of the 6 and 3 eighths notes indenture. Now, on the question of whether there was, in fact, a lease by the transfer subsidiaries, Windstream's lawyer argued that there is a lease between Holdings and Unity, and that that lease contains a sole tenant provision. But then Judge Furman asked, quote, why would it be inconsistent to imply a lease in fact, whether from CSNL or a sublease from Holdings? So we can see that uh, this question of whether there is, in fact, a lease seems to be an issue that the judge is thinking a lot about. That's right, Teresa. Um, And turning to the dispute about permitted refinancing indebtedness related to the 2017 note exchanges, uh, this relates to the 4.09b section of the indenture of the six and three-eighths notes, which allows Windstream to incur, quote, permitted refinancing indebtedness. The uh, The definition of permitted refinancing indebtedness requires that the, quote, amount of such permitted refinancing indebtedness does not exceed the amount of the indebtedness so extended, refinanced, renewed, replaced, defeased, or refunded, uh, parentheses, plus all accrued and unpaid interest thereon, and the amount of any reasonably determined premium necessary to accomplish such refinancing and such reasonable expenses incurred in connection therewith, end quote. Aurelius' lawyer emphasized that Windstream has disavowed the argument that the additional $40 million of indebtedness incurred in the exchange was a premium and shouldn't now be allowed to make the argument. And then, Aurelius' lawyer explained, amount is defined in the indenture to refer only to principal amount, 
So Windstream also can't rely on the argument that the economic amount of the new and old notes exchanged in the 2017 transactions was functionally equivalent. For its part, Windstream reiterated that no premium was paid in the transactions because the exchanged new and old notes were mathematically equivalent and that if there was an additional amount of indebtedness occurred, it would be a premium that was reasonably determined and necessary to accomplish the refinancing. Thanks, Chase. But let's first review how we got to this point. Now, the witness testimony was presented last week from Monday, July 23rd through Wednesday, July 25th. Chase, can you tell us what happened at that hearing? Let's start with the sale leaseback witnesses. Sure. So the, fir- uh, the first witness uh, was former Windstream General Counsel John Fletcher. One of the interesting exchanges occurred when he was cross-examined by U.S. Bank's lawyer regarding regulatory submissions made to several states at the time of the spin. Specifically, U.S. Bank pointed out that Windstream identified the transfer subsidiaries, which were transferring the properties, as the parties that would be leasing back the spun-out assets. Later, Saish will discuss why this is an important point, but continuing with the trial, General Counsel Fletcher said that he would, quote, not use that language today, end quote, and that the references to the, the reference to the transfer subsidiaries was, quote, imprecise. Later, Fletcher would blame the lack of precision on a tight 10-day f- time frame for completion of the filings. Fletcher asserted that, quote, when you look at these filings in their full form, end quote, it was his belief that they were accurate in all material respects. Windstream Senior Vice President and Controller John Eichler was the next to take the stand, providing testimony focused on the accounting aspects of the spinoff transaction. U.S. Bank's lawyer focused on the reference to payments from Windstream services to Windstream's holdings as long-term lease obligations on services income statements and to those payments as leasing income from subsidiaries on holdings income and cash flow statements. Eichler explained that the transaction couldn't be treated as a sale leaseback for accounting purposes if the seller or lessee had significant continuing involvement in the assets, which he asserted is happening here. In contrast, U.S. Bank's accounting witness, uh, witness David LaRue, testified that while the transaction was considered to be a spin-off leaseback, it also met the requirement under U.S. GAAP to be considered a sale leaseback. LaRue testified that he believes there is an quote, unwritten lease between Windstream Holdings and the transfer subsidiaries, evidenced by the disclosures in the financial statements uh, referencing payments from services to holdings and multiple related footnotes that describe the spinoff transaction. The final witness on the sale leaseback issue was Windstream CFO Bob Gunderman, who conceded that if the Windstream subsidiaries did not use their money to pay the lease rent, they would be in default and Unity would have the ability to exercise its rights under the lease. Thanks, Chase. Now, Saish, can you chime in from a covenants perspective? I know that we've extensively reviewed the sale leaseback issue in a previous podcast, but can you give us a review of what the major arguments are here? Sure. So as we touched on previously, the current dispute stems from Windstream's 2015 spinoff of Unity. For background, Windstream transferred assets, including fiber optic and copper cable lines, to Unity in exchange for Unity stock, cash, and Unity debt. Windstream then distributed Unity stock to its shareholders. Importantly, Windstream entered into a lease with Unity related to the transferred assets. Now, to be precise, it's important to note that the main operating subsidiary of Windstream, which we call services, 
is the issuer under the relevant indentures. Its parent company, which we'll call Holdings, is the counterparty to the unity lease. Notably, Holdings is not subject to the restrictive covenants under the indentures. Now, the indentures themselves, including the ones governing the August 2023 notes that Aurelius owns, include a covenant prohibiting sale leasebacks. If a transaction is a sale leaseback, then it must satisfy certain conditions. The litigation is focused around whether the transfers to Unity and the related lease are indeed a sale leaseback as defined under the indenture. The company's main argument is related to the fact that Holdings is the main counterparty to the lease. The definition of sale and leaseback on its face generally applies to a situation where one party sells assets and then that same party leases those sold assets back from the purchaser. Here, the transferred assets were from services subsidiaries, but were then leased back to holdings. The company argues that the indenture does not prohibit one entity from selling assets, while a different, albeit related entity, leases those assets back. However, as raised by Aurelius, services and the transfer subsidiaries still continue to use and maintain those assets and fund the lease payments and other certain capital expenditures. To some extent, this is a debate of form versus substance. While Holdings is technically the only party to the lease, the trustee and Aurelius are arguing that subsidiaries, that services and its subsidiaries should still be viewed as leasing back the properties. Finally, the implications of the transaction constituting a sale leaseback are naturally substantial, because if the transaction is a sale leaseback, at the very least, the company likely violated the sale leaseback covenant. Right, and that brings us to the 2017 exchanges. Windstream undertook those exchanges in November when holders of its other debt were permitted to exchange into the 6 and 3 notes. Those are the August 2023 notes. And those other holders who exchanged into those notes then provided majority consents to waive any alleged event of default on the 2015 spinoff transaction. Chase, can you tell us what happened in the courtroom relating to the 2017 exchanges? Sure. So um, Robert Gunderman, again, was the first uh, was on the stand and he was the first to testify on the exchanges. Uh, And he agreed that in the exchanges, there was an approximately 40 million dollar increase in indebtedness. And a portion of that increase was related to exchange ratios. However, he stood firm in his belief that no excess and no premium was paid in the transaction. Next to take the stand was Aurelius Managing Director Dennis Prieto, who was questioned about some of Aurelius' trading activity on Windstream bonds. Prieto Prieto affirmed that Aurelius was increasing its holdings of the 6 and 3 eighths notes between September 2017, when it issued the notice of default to Windstream, and November 7th, when the exchange transactions closed. This is despite Aurelius having issued a notice of default to Windstream on those same notes. During the witness testimony, Judge Furman also took a number of questions about Aurelius' purported uh, long credit default swap position. Right. And the next witness to testify in the exchange was Stephen Cheeseman, uh, who is the managing director and head of liability management at Citigroup, Capital Mar- uh, at Citigroup Global Markets, who advised Windstream on the exchanges. Cheeseman gave the backstory of the lead up to the November 2017 transactions and the marketing process by which the exchange ratios were ultimately set. He told the court that he put 10 bondholder groups under NDAs to determine what exchange ratio would ultimately be needed for the exchange to be successful. Next on the witness stand was Aurelius's expert, Dr. Faden Sabri of Neera Economic Consulting, who offered testimony as to the net economic benefits of the exchange offers. 
Now, Windstream's lawyer took swings at Sabre's credibility, particularly the witness's lack of practical experience with exchange offers. Sabri admitted under cross-examination that she had made no attempts to contact Windstream bondholders for their input in forming her analysis, and that she did not ever receive data on Aurelius's CDS and debt trades. Sabri's analysis was primarily focused on identifying the point at which investors would be mathematically indifferent to exchanging or holding their bonds in the exchange offer. However, Windstream's lawyer highlighted that even Sabri's results showed that Windstream might have to offer higher than par to entice bondholders to exchange. That's right, Teresa. And uh, the final witness uh, on the stand uh, in the trial was Michael McCarty, who's CEO and chairman of M.M. Dillon & Company. Uh, It's a boutique investment bank. Uh, He was cross-examined by Aurelius Lawyer, who, without going into unnecessary details, uh, let's just say he pulled no punches in his interrogation. Uh, McCarty testified that it was his view that there was no premium included in the exchange, and what the bondholders gave up and what they got was equivalent when all factors at play were considered. So, Saish, turning back to you, what about the Covenant's arguments with respect to the exchange offer? So the exchange offer, going back a little... The exchange offer allowed the company to issue additional August 2023 notes and dilute Aurelius's holdings. This allowed the company to obtain consents to waive any defaults related to the alleged sale leaseback. Key to, key to this transaction is the fact that the new 6 and 3 eighths notes issued in the exchange offers were able to vote as a single series as the existing 6 and 3 eighths notes, including those held by Aurelius. The critical inquiry here is whether those notes were permitted under the negative covenant section of the indenture. While Aurelius also raises points related to violations of the payments for consent and liens covenants, their main argument relates to whether the new 6 and 3 eighths notes were permitted under the debt covenant. This point likely comes down to whether the new notes constituted, quote, permitted refinancing debt, as Chase previously discussed. Now, Windstream's earnings call is scheduled for this coming Thursday, August 9th at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. And of course, we can expect to hear from Judge Furman on a ruling, which as always, Reorg will get to you. So thanks, Chase and Saish, for joining me today and discussing the current state of play with Windstream. It's certainly an interesting, fluid situation in which many things could change, and Reorg will be closely watching the outcome of the trial. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg.